it's Adam Voith from Billions, and I'm on Promoter 101. Recorded live from the studios of Promoter 101, it's episode 58, featuring AEG Presents Lenore Kinder, First Row Talents John Finberg, and Straight No Chasers Mike Luganbill. Here's Steiny. Welcome to the podcast, friends, and thanks for joining us. We've got a great show for you today, and right off the bat, want to give a shout-out to Connor from Seattle for his amazing theme song of Promoter 101's Tongue Bath. Well done on that version, and we're looking forward to seeing more of those coming in soon. If you want to take a crack at rearranging and recording it, we'll use it on the show. Note, you've got to be willing to waive any rights so that we can use the track. We'd love to hear your versions. Dan, we've got some great guests on episode 58 of Promoter 101, starting later with AEG Presents and 2017 ACM's Don Romeo Talent Buyer of the Year. Miss Lenore Kinder is going to join us. Then it'll be First Row Talent's John Finberg talking about the big score he's got with Nightwish. And we'll close it out with Atlantic Records recording artist and Straight No Chaser member Mike Luganbill offering us a perspective on the artist side of things from a band that I can attest to is nearly always on the road. Plus, we've got the news of the week. Hey everyone, this is Cindy Lynott, Kira Finkenberg, Patty Ann Tarleton, Whitney Bond, Amy Miller, John Holiday, Marcy Allen, Paula Palazzo, Becca Leifer, and you're listening to Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101. And I'm on Promoter 101. If you're a fan of the podcast, catch us live and on tour when we come to a city near you. Aspen Live, Aspen, Colorado this December. The time is approaching. We're all, of course, excited for Dan's sit-down at Aspen Live on December 8th. He's going to be interviewing the president of Ticketmaster North America, Jared Smith. Excited about that one. Can't wait to see some of the bigger heads of state all in the same room and getting to talk ticketing with the guy that can really impact change. We're rolling into the Big Easy on January 16th. Promoter 101 comes to Ticketfly for the first time ever with special guests from Lockin' and Brooklyn Bowl, Mr. Peter Shapiro, a.k.a. Shappy in the house. And in between now and then, follow us on Twitter. Keep up with us. Stani is at The Jew. The show is at Promoters. That's Promoters, plural, 101. And I'm at W. Luke Pierce. The W stands for William for our longtime listeners. It's true. Are you tired of us just talking all the time? Well, we want to hear from you. We want to know what you're thinking. Go ahead and drop us a line with your thoughts, opinions, shoe sizes, what have you. It's Steiny at Promoter101.net. We'll respond to anything and in a timely manner. If you've missed any of the past podcasts, you can always catch up at Promoter101.net. This week, we feature a reissue of episode 16. Artist manager Jake Gold, known for his work with the Tragically Hip, as well as being a judge on Canadian Idol. Plus, Seth and Alma Shek from Access Event Solutions also join us. And if you haven't heard it, it's new to you. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to Promoter 101 wherever you podcast. And please help us spread the word by telling your friends. Drop a review on iTunes if you haven't already. It really helps us with our rankings. Hey, it's Pete Shapiro from Brooklyn Bowl and a bunch of other stuff. And I'm going to be down at FlyCon on Promoter 101. Shit. Dan, it's that time for the news of the week. We should probably kick it off from some news right here in Music City. It was country music's biggest night last Wednesday night as Bridgestone Arena rolled out the red carpet for the 51st annual Country Music Awards. The crowd at Bridgestone were wowed by some awesome performances from more than 40 artists. Big winners that night, the coveted Entertainer of the Year Award went to Garth Brooks, while Miranda Lambert picked up her seventh Female Vocalist of the Year, and Chris Stapleton picked up two awards, 
one for male vocalist, and one for album of the year for his album, From a Room, Volume 1. And noticeably absent to pick up her award for best song of the year, Better Man, was Miss Taylor Swift. Little Big Town accepted this trophy on her behalf while Taylor was in New York for Saturday Night Live's rehearsals. The industry is a buzz about Taylor's new album and tour. She is just the buzz of the industry right now, Luke. We're recording this podcast on a Friday afternoon. Her album is just out today. She'll do SNL tomorrow night, so we won't be able to talk about it for this week's podcast, but I'm sure we will be talking about it next week. This has been a pretty controversial rollout of her album, the decision to create a hype and not really a bundling system around her album for her upcoming to-be-announced tour, but all these fan initiatives have gone into providing priority in the pre-order process have yet to unfold. I'm really interested to see how that process combination of verified fan with this ranking system that her and her marketing team have implemented really plays out. It's going to be interesting to see how well she dances on the edge of that knife, so to speak, because she really is at the point of too much saturation in the marketing marketplace right now. It's pretty incredible the length and breadth of the campaign that she's running here for this new album, Reputation. Have you listened to it yet, Dan? No, but uh, haters going to hate, you know? That's for sure. We are learning more and more about what's happening with Louis C.K. This is overwhelming for one of the career giants. Clearly things are changing as far as shows being pulled off the air and huge, huge things. And Luke, you're saying he's already admitted to this, right? Right. There were five women that came out from 2002 to 2005 that Louis C.K. acted inappropriately from. It was Chicago comedians Dana Mann Goodman and Julia Wolov in 2002, and then Abby Shackner in 2003, and then again on the phone to Rebecca Corey in 2005. There was a fifth woman who declined to be named in that New York Times article, and C.K. came out Friday afternoon after this Wednesday article with a statement released through his publicist in the opening lines where I want to address the stories told to the New York Times by five women named Abby, Rebecca, Dana, and Julia, who felt able to name themselves and one who did not. These stories are true. So CK flatly admitting to this. His statement later goes on and never really says the words, I'm sorry, during any of that statement, but certainly acts with a degree of responsibility and taking responsibility. Throughout all of these disgusting acts that have been happening, you've seen few people actually take responsibility for it. You throw words around like alleged, stories, whatever you want to use for a lack of confirmation for these things. CK, within a couple days, comes out, admits to it, takes responsibility for it, which is more than I can say for any of these fucking pigs that are out there in this world. Does this bode well for CK? I don't know. I think of all of the really depraved acts that have happened in the past couple weeks, this response and the timeliness of this response has been the most truthful, I'd say, and probably the most timely for it. It's not excusing CK for anything that he did. But I'm just noting that as far as team-wide and crisis-wide responses go, this is probably the best one I've seen, Dan. As a father, it's upsetting. As a human, it's upsetting. Still amazed on how far this reaches. I guess I was kind of in denial, Luke. I didn't get it. I didn't realize this was such an epidemic that it's turning out to be. Yeah, I agree. Let's move on. Pandora stock last week was down 24% after a weak earnings report. Pandora continuing to take it in the teeth. They did have a little bit of a response and recovery uh, up a few points uh, earlier in this week, but their active users, which always kind of floated between 75 and uh, 80 million users monthly, was reported 73 million and some downward trends across the board as that company continues to try to right the ship. Also with earnings in mind, Live Nation's coming out of a really strong one, Luke. 
Yeah, they reported last week that their third quarter revenue was up 12% year over year, up just over $3.6 billion, and that uh, operating income was up 5%, which for the largest producer of live entertainment and festival operations in the world, that's a good sign for the health of the overall live industry. It seems like they are doing something right under the leadership of Mike Rapino. They just keep buying and acquiring and growing. They're definitely in growth mode. It's impressive to watch. Right. Tour news. Ozzy Osbourne announced a farewell tour again. Metallica's UK tour is just crushing it at the box office. Weezer and the Pixies are going to do a co-headlining tour they just announced for the Sheds for the summer of 2018. And Nickelback has announced some Las Vegas dates. And finally, we want to take a moment to shine a spotlight on one of the hardest working managers in the game, Mr. Mark DeTore. Not only is he hustling in the music business, he's got a side business of making his own whiskey. It's making him the Promoter 101 Badass of the Week. Congrats goes out to you, Mark. Well deserved. This is Simon Shaw from Shaw Entertainment Group on Promoter 101. In this week's featured interview for episode 58, we're excited to be joined by AEG Presents Lenore Kinder. In July, Lenore was awarded the 2017 ACM's Don Romeo Talent Buyer of the Year, and this interview airs as she winds down a sold-out Lumineers tour. Lenore, what an honor that you took the time to be with us. Thank you. I'm very excited. We've known each other for a long time, but personality-wise, you were one of the funner buyers in the country. There's no one that's not like excited when your name comes up, smiles on people's face when they talk about you. Well, hopefully that starts moving some commas around in my favor if they like working with me so much. I'm going to hold them to it. It seems like the commas have moved around quite a bit since I've known you. It's gone from being working in the market to working everywhere. You have no borders anymore. Yeah. The last couple of years have been a really interesting ride and doing touring has really expanded my role in AEG and the services that I can provide for our clients. And it's been a really exciting time starting with the small seed with Casey and watching that grow and the work that she and I have done together. Casey Musgrave. Yep. Mrs. Casey Musgrave. Actually, Mrs. Rustin Kelly now. She was just married in a beautiful farm in Franklin and looked lovely as always. It was a really great time. But yeah, doing the work with her and three years later, flash forward to where we are now and a new record coming out next year and her headlining C2C and going out on our tour with Little Big Town to... C2C, country to country. Yep. And working with the Lumineers with the amazing tour we just wrapped up at the end of March, North American tour, over 300,000 tickets sold, 15 plus million dollar gross box office pretty incredible stuff. A tour that we'll announce on another act that I'm really excited to work with. Kelsey Ballerini will be producing her 2018 North American tour. It's time to watch her swing for the fences. I'm really excited for her. What size rooms are you guys playing around the country on that? That's going to be anywhere from 1,500 to 2,500. Want to set this up to be a home run for her. So ballrooms to big theaters. Correct. Yeah. She's a Knoxville girl too. I think I probably graduated from college when she was five, but whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So you've built an incredible footprint here, you and Allie. AEG has got their hands in a lot of pots in this market. Yeah, the market has changed considerably since Allie hired me 10 years ago. There were two major promoters here being AEG and Outback. And since then, it's really evolved a lot. So there's a lot of promoters here for one market. It's highly competitive, so we still have a pretty substantial regional footprint, but we also run touring out of our office, and Allie has been an amazing mentor and allowed me a lot of leeway to grow under her guidance to not only book regionally, but take on national tours too. It's really exciting. It's nice to get to put both caps on, as you know, 
It's fun to have a territory so I can build new relationships with new clients instead of just submitting an unsolicited tour offer. I actually get to build organic relationships from the ground up with agents, managers, and the actual artists of being in at the beginning of their career, hopefully growing that into a national footprint. Let's talk about that for a minute. So it's one thing to learn your market and to be able to know what's going to sell here in the Tennessee area. You know that you can sell a rock show or you can sell a country show or jazz won't sell. You know that about this market inside and out over years of being here. But now to take an act into another market, into another part of the country that you don't know so well, and to be able to figure out what the right play is and what the right level is. And for the Lumineers, they're hitting it out of the park everywhere. It's a little less guesswork. That tour is pretty much going to work anywhere you put it right now. But something playing ballrooms and theaters, it could be hit or miss based on the market. So picking the right rooms, the right markets, and doing that research, that's got to be a new challenge. Well, I will say, yes, we absolutely nailed it out of the park with the Lumineers, but that tour did not feel bulletproof when we were setting it up. Every tour that I put up, I set it up as though it's the most vulnerable tour that's going to be on the road. Not that I don't believe in my artists, but I want to protect them at all costs and make sure that I'm setting it up to succeed. So I don't ever want to go into a situation so headstrong that I lose sight of the fact that we may not sell out. So I want to set it up to sell out. So there was a lot of discussion with the Lumineers of making sure that we vetted the right markets in terms of traffic and radio support, even all the way down to picking the right arenas to make sure that they had a fucking curtaining system. Every single show, with the exception of like Madison Square Garden, and I think the arena at Gwinnett, we went into it as a lower bowl situation. We set it up for success to grow it all the way, but had our expectations dialed in to make it a successful tour if we didn't hit it over the fence. I think that there's that approach for arena business and then even going to the work that I do with Kelsey or, or Casey you know, there's a lot of vetting that takes place. Some of it's just that promoter gut, but I pour through a lot of data. The like super nerd Excel accountant side of me comes out where I'm pouring through social numbers, album sales, streams, airplay, and then actually looking at traffic that's passed through the building for the last three years and seeing how certain shows have performed and not so saying- So you're doing like, this market for market. On, these, on the smaller ones, absolutely. I'm very slow and methodical, and I know that it's probably really annoying to the people that I work with at first when they start to understand my style. But these tours at that level, it is imperative that you set these up to be successful. You only get one or two swings at it. If you're lucky, you get two. And especially with Casey, we were really going into uncharted territories. She didn't want to play the boot scoots and honky tonks that are soft ticket. She wanted to go play rock rooms. You're talking about the places like the Grizzly Rose in Denver or something where there's always going to be Correct. a crowd there for a country exactly. show. Exactly, or like a Cotton Eye Joe in Knoxville. You know, that's like the low-hanging fruit, the guarantees are the gross at the door. And it's not the type of fan that she wanted. She wanted fans that were going to pay $35-plus to listen to her. People that were coming to a Casey concert, not going out to the country music night. Exactly. It was about building a real fan base. There was a lot of vetting that had to take place. And we had a couple of misses. One was the Riv in Chicago. She wanted to play the rock room and we tried it and we still had good numbers, but we didn't sell out. And to turn around and put her in Joliet and do 
substantially better kind of taught us like her fan base is an adventurous country fan but they're still not wanting to get off the blue line in chicago and if you play the suburbs sometimes instead of playing the city those shows do better sometimes oh absolutely i mean i would say nine times out of ten put chase rice in clive iowa he's gonna sell out right you put him in des moines he's not gonna do as many tickets in retrospect like maybe you put like a pop country artist in clive iowa it might not do as well so i think people try and homogenize country because it's just country, but there's so many different spectrums of it from what a Chase Rice fan is to what a Casey Musgraves fan is to what a Kelsey Ballerini or Maren Morris fan is like to what a Johnny Cash fan is. Exactly. Exactly. To Sturgill Simpson. I mean, it's like just because it's country doesn't mean that it's going to trend and respond the same way. Now that you're doing all of this national bigger picture stuff and you're still buying stuff locally and regionally, you're balancing both sides of that. Mm -hmm. When you take an act into somebody else's market, that has another AG office. Are you guys working together in tandem to figure out what the right venue is? And are you taking all that input in? Or are you guys saying, this is where we're playing, this is what we're doing? Sometimes I just come into the market, I already have an idea of how I want things to go and what my vision is or what the artist's vision is. And other times there's a total collaborative effort with a lot of feedback and brainstorming. It just honestly, it depends. With the Lumineers, we were routing and we had our goals and our plans and we plowed through. With Casey, there's a little bit more back and forth, at least for the first tour. And then I realized when I'm calling a PD in Portland for her to play the Crystal Ballroom, which is what, like 1,500 cap. And I called the PD and I said, how many tickets do you think that Casey's worth in the market? It's her first time headlining and want to make sure that I do the right thing. Like, what should the ticket price be? And he said that she could sell 600 tickets. And I was like, okay, I'm going to get off the phone now. Hung up. It's like, you absolutely don't understand this project. So I realized I was kind of going to be a lone wolf on that one. You know, she ended up selling out the Crystal Ballroom in advance on like a 30 plus dollar ticket. So I think all projects are a little bit different. Some require more feedback or I feel like I need more feedback and other ones I feel like I have a better handle on it. I think there's a lot of stations where they just don't get that, where the PDs have no idea. There's been a disconnect because radio hasn't been at the table for a very long time now that the internet is so prevalent. Yeah, I think that they're probably struggling with the same thing that a lot of promoters are. It's like, how the hell do you keep up? There's so many acts out there. And how do you keep up with the cycle, the velocity at which we get these new acts and the kids like millennials, their tastes shift so quickly that it's kind of hard to keep up with in that sense. And I think that programmers are probably experiencing a lot of that. I also have to say, I don't necessarily understand how their job works, and they probably don't understand how my job works. So I don't expect for them to be able to tell me how many tickets an artist can sell. Otherwise, they would probably do my job, right? I think as long as we work in tandem, and I can get good partners, that's all I'm looking for is somebody that believes in the project that I'm doing and that can help be a vehicle to sell tickets. And in turn, they make some money too. Is it cutting down on what you're getting to do here at home because of the touring is taking so much time? No, I don't think so at all. You know, AEG's been waiting for the right opportunity in this market to expand our footprint. And we found that. So, I mean, we still do a large number of shows at the Ryman Auditorium. And it's an absolute honor to work with Sally and her team there. Is that a new venue here? Yeah, it was built in 1892. It's pretty new. Pretty cool little joint right across the street from us. Um, absolute honor to work there with their staff. Bridgestone, it, it shifts every year. It's like you know, one year you'll do a whole swath of regional one-off arena shows. And then the next year it's all sucked up to touring. So it just, you know, that shrinks and expands 
every year based off of the deals that are floating around. We still do club business here, believe it or not, without a club. Like Allie allows me the ability to still grow artists from the ground up. I mean, I've worked with artists like Adele, Imagine Dragons, Mumford and Sons, The Lumineers, Moon Taxi, you name it, from the Cannery Ballroom all the way to some of those artists' arenas. You know, it's pretty amazing to still get to work with acts like that. So yeah, long-winded. Yes, we're still very active in this market. And it's something that I do enjoy. The footprint of females in this business, in this town in particular, is probably more prevalent than any other part of our business in the country. Do you find that to be true? My thing is like, if you want to be a boss, just act like a boss. And it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. That's when I'm like pumping my chest up, telling myself to like believe this shit. But like in true actuality, like it is tough being a woman out there. And I do think that there are a ton of really talented women here and we all support one another. It's very visible here. Yeah, it's refreshing. And we're all helping push down barriers together. And I think that although the good old boy network still exists here, we're making places for ourselves at the table, whether they like it or not. You got to deal with us. This is a power market and the women that are running it are strong, solid business leaders that have been in place for a long time. Yeah, they're good at their job. That's why they have it. It doesn't matter if they're a, a woman or a male, like they're good at their jobs. So that's why they have it. And there's some boss ass bitches in this town running shit. It's exciting to be a part of it. You're coming off a good run. You just won an awesome award. Yeah, I won ACM Talent Buyer of the Year. It was really surreal and exciting, and I 100% have Casey Musgraves to thank for that. I mean, that award is more hers than it is mine, honestly. I wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't for hers, how I feel half the time. The relationship that she and I have is pretty special. She's got my back, I've got her back, and we're doing really cool shit together and really wading through some uncharted territories, hopefully opening doors for other artists as well. We can talk about the success at AEG and the touring and how great you guys are doing here. And it's clear. It is. And you are. But your path from going from college to breaking into this business and the borders to entry and how that happened, I think, is a more fascinating story if we could talk about that for a minute. I graduated from the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, go balls. And my junior year in college, I kind of had a meltdown. I was an accounting major and half of my friends flunked out of school and I'd made straight A's and I was miserable. I hated it. And I decided I was going to drop out of school and my mom flipped out and was like, you cannot drop out of school. So Instead of dropping out of school, I went on a little weekend trip and partied my brains out with some of my friends and came back with this revelation that I wanted to be in the music business because I wanted to combine a passion with... Accounting? Yeah. And basically, my whole thought process was if I do something I love, then I will excel at it because I'll enjoy doing it and to bet on myself instead of money and then the money would eventually be there. And that's kind of been my mantra since then. It still applies now. So I cobbled together the best little package in college that I could to get myself prepared for the music industry. I got a degree in marketing and a minor in theater with an emphasis in production. So I could understand basic lexicon, like stage left, stage right, upstage, downstage, park hands, Lico's, all this shit. And I got myself an internship with Ashley Capps. And it was the year before Bonnaroo announced. And I got myself fired from my internship because I partied too much and I showed up to work too late. And it was the most valuable lesson ever learned that, yeah, this is fun, but it's a business. And you got to show up and you got to be present and you got to kick ass because if you don't, somebody else will. It really lit a fire under my ass. How long were you there? I was there maybe three or four months. And in that time, I befriended the owner of a club that Ashley's team was booking. And it was called Blue Cats. 
at the time a 500 cap club in Knoxville's old city. So after graduation, the owner hired me on to come work for him in advanced shows. And then he let someone go. And then I started doing the marketing and then I gained more trust. And then I started working with Brian Penix. He was working at AC Entertainment at the time and he and I were booking Blue Cats. I was at Blue Cats almost five years. When I left, I was the director of operations. And when Brian decided to move to Nashville to work for Outback, I came with him and I quit Blue Cats and moved to Nashville. Were you at Outback? No, I tried to quit Blue Cats. Gary wouldn't let me quit. So he kept me on payroll, which was kind of fucking amazing. And so I was still booking Blue Cats when I was living in Nashville. I went out and tour managed Be Your Own Pet, worked with Gillian Welch on a couple of runs, like selling merch and stuff. Basically anything I could do to work, whether it was stagehand work, I think I run spot ops at a music conference here, which was extremely depressing to like no agents in the room. And I was running a fucking spot. Couldn't find a job. I was basically like begging everyone to hire me. I think that point, the only person that offered me a job, Scott Clayton offered me a job to do ticket counts at CAA, which I turned down because I wanted to keep my job at Blue Cats as well. And it was an obvious conflict. During that time, Chris Cobb introduced me to Allie. He thought that we might be kindred spirits and she would be a good person for me to meet. And so I went to her office to meet her. She didn't show up. So that was a bummer. I was like, <laughs> fuck, man, I'm done. I've basically met with every promoter in this town and they won't return my calls. And won't even show up for meetings, they said. I know. <laughs> and just totally just like ghosted me. So we ended up scheduling another meeting. I asked her what her favorite coffee was. I think it was like a cinnamon latte. And I went to JJ's Market and I brought her a coffee. And we sat and we chatted and we had a really nice time. And we stayed in touch and I would randomly call or email her every couple of weeks or just show up with coffee, her favorite coffee, and just be like, hey, it's me. I'm still looking like love to come kick ass with you one day. And Megan Wilson was working for her at the time. And I think she was marketing Louis Nickelback tour and needed some hired help. So they brought me in as a paid marketing intern. At the ripe old age of 27, I was a paid marketing intern. It was pretty depressing. But you got, got you in the door. Yeah, I got my foot in the door and I was really thankful for the opportunity and I just busted my fucking ass, man. Was that the Nickelback Three Days Grace Breaking Benjamin tour? I can't remember. I just remember we did one promotion called Nickelback to School and I <laughs> got to put stickers on all these notebooks. I sat and put Nickelback stickers on them and like packaged them up to ship to radio stations. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. But Allie Harnell, her assistant went out of the country and so I covered for her and was Allie's assistant for like two weeks and we just really hit it off. Her director of marketing at the time quit. And so she hired another director of marketing and brought me on as a marketing assistant. The rest is history. That was 10 years ago. Next month, started as a marketing assistant. Within about a year's time, year and a half's time, I was buying shows. I'd take her offers that she would send and I would create my own scaling and or create my own projections based off of her scaling. And I would send them to her so that she could see that I had a gut like what my gut and my appetite for buying was and if I was good at like making these projections. And so I started buying some club shows. The first club show I bought in Nashville was Red at Rocket Town. It was so bizarre. That was my first swing at it. Made money, just built my trust with her. Was buying and marketing and then slowly the buying became so much that the marketing went away. But to this day, I still market some of my shows. Oh, really? Yeah, I want to like understand all the tools that are out there. I would say my marketing team would say I'm a control freak, but I want to understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. I feel like it makes me a better promoter to have been a runner, worked the box office, or been a tour manager, or done the marketing. Like I understand how all the pieces go together. Let me stop for a second and point out that you mentioned when you were at AC that it didn't work out, that it was you. You fucked up. 
Oh, I totally fucked up. I think that's something in our industry you don't hear a lot, that it didn't work out there, they didn't get me. But the fact that you own that, has got to be a big part of you in understanding like that was a moment that you had to change what you were doing. It's pretty cool that you took that as a lesson and not, Ashley doesn't know what I'm doing. Yeah, that was my dream job that I like fucked up. It was a big moment for me. Man, I really blew it. This is the only promoter in my town. What was I thinking? And then they announced Bonnaroo and it was like, fuck, I really screwed up. It really lit a fire under my ass. Like, hey girl, just because you like music and you have good taste in music and you're fun doesn't mean shit. There's 10,000 other people out there could say the same thing about themselves. What's going to separate you from them? Your drive, your work ethic, your tenacity. Following through when you say you're going to do something. Step up, be present and deliver. This is absolutely a relationship business, 100%. I don't want to be all things to everyone other than kind. I'm totally okay with being known as a kind person, but I'm not trying to do every tour or every show. But the people that I do work with really closely, I want them to know that I have their back and that I am going to work really hard for them. And I want to feel the same way towards them. I mean, Joe Atamian's like family to me. He's a good dude and he has my back and I have his back. And I think that that's the way that it's supposed to be. Like ideally when you can work with your friends like that, that's a dream scenario. Did you know he was agent and agent versus promoter? Maybe. It's outed now. I mean, he told me I'd known for like a couple of years. It was not a hard secret to keep. He trusted me with something pretty special to him. So I don't want to fuck that up for him. It's interesting the people that didn't didn't know. It's kind of Yeah. Well now that you look back on it and you know and there's all the like Seinfeld references and shit like that, it's so easy to be like, Oh yeah, duh, that's totally him and Scott. The business is changing, the city's on the rise. I mean, you look out the window and there's cranes everywhere. As the city becomes bigger and bigger and more important as a music community, does that change your problem with trying to figure out how to route against traffic and dealing with everyone in the world playing this market? To every agent and manager that's out there listening, this is not an A market. If you can sell 1,500 tickets in Chicago, that doesn't mean you can sell 1,500 tickets in Nashville. It probably means you're going to sell five to 600 tickets. That's the thing that I always get is like, oh, we're selling 1,500 to 2,000 tickets in New York, LA, and Chicago on a $25 ticket. I'm like, those cities are substantially larger than Nashville. It's interesting. I did my own little fun study four or five years ago, and I pulled ticket sales in some of the top arenas in the country and compared that to the sales at Bridgestone and analyzed the population. And you have to factor in like the tourism part too of people that fly in for shows and whatever. For example, my mother-in-law came in town this weekend to see Jason Isbell at the Ryman because she wanted to see that. So that skews those numbers, stuff like that. Kind of like people going to Red Rocks. Exactly. But it made the numbers look like people in Nashville went to 30% more concerts than the per average. Capita? Yeah, which is kind of crazy, but I hang out with a lot of people outside of the industry, so I don't feel like I'm insulated and thinking like, oh yeah, I've got to go to this show, that show, but just my buddies that I chat with. I mean, they're going to shows all the time. This town is known as Music City, and we really take pride. I think the community as a whole take pride in that brand. They make a point to be really educated when it comes to music and active in going to concerts. So while this market does perform better than most markets this size, we also have to keep in mind that it's still a market 
market with less than 2 million people in it. One thing I find fascinating about this market is so many people do work in the industry. In a normal city, you could get on the list for a show if you wanted to go. But this is a city where people are used to paying for tickets. They don't ask because everyone would be on the list. And it's not uncommon to go to a show and see 100 people from the industry. And most of them will have paid to go to that show because it's just a respect thing. You can't possibly put everybody on the list for your show. So people don't ask as much. Yes and no. People get it when it comes to like a reserve show. They understand a butt in a seat is a ticket. But when it comes to club business, you know, or a GA situation, I think that there's not as much perceived value. So people definitely use the guest list scenario a little bit more. Since I don't participate in the bar revenue, I could give a shit, you know, but I don't know. I think since people are in the business, there's more respect for it and understanding of like, this is revenue and it's coming from somewhere. There's only so many comps out there. And as important as we'd all like to feel like we are there's always somebody a little bit more important than us that's probably going to get the free ticket instead of us the market's growing does that make the value of this market better as acts want to build here because this market is on such a huge population burst I think that people just love this town because it's still about the song. This whole town exists because of the song, because of songwriting and publishing. And that to this day is still prevalent. And for an artist, that's where it starts and stops. So the fact that that is the most precious thing here will continue to perpetuate the success of this market in terms of the music industry. Bands all over the board, whether it's a hip hop artist, heavy metal or punk rock, this town feels appealing to a lot of them because there's such an awesome creative community here and they support all across the genres like you're gonna see all different types of acts all different types of genres working together collaborating helping one another here and I don't want to act like this is the only market that happens in in the country I'm just speaking from my point of view as a Nashvilleian it's just really special and especially in East Nashville, the vibe over there is so incredible. And the local scene here is, it's an honor to be a part of it, honestly. That was something, even though I work for a large corporation, I want to feel ingrained in the local music scene. It's just really special here. I mean, we have a lot of young, talented artists coming out of this market that are making really big waves for themselves. I mean, like, look at Moon Taxi, the last song that they put on Spotify. I haven't checked in a while. The last time I checked, it was over 53 million streams. And that's a self-release. I mean, that's fucking incredible. We've got them coming up at the Ryman at the end of this month. They're going to sell out two nights at the Ryman, a local artist. That's fucking awesome. And they're making waves all over the country. So to say that you're a part of something like that, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps. It's fucking thrilling. I love artist development and I love working with young acts. And it's so easy to do that here in my eyes. One, because of our geographical location. We have seven states touching us. You can be to New York in 12 hours by van. And the business that's here from publishing to labels to booking agencies to publicists, to promoters, to risk insurance. I mean, you name it, it is here. Everything you need is here. Lenore is simply great. An amazing hang. Love and respect the hell out of her. This is Phil Rodriguez from Move Concerts, and you're listening to Promoter 101. It's that time of the podcast where we go through the tweets of the week. Steiny, I want to jump into some of the tweets from this past week. Can you humor me? Explain what was going on in your mind when you wrote each of these Promoter 101 tweets. Let's start with this one. It never really occurred to me that when I first wanted to become a concert promoter, the job was mostly setting up catering and accounting for it. It really is all I do. It's amazing. When you buy eight dates of a tour totally based on who the agent is, and then the agent gets fired right after the tour goes on sale. Fuck me for doing a friend a solid, huh? When a venue charges a facility fee on comps. Hashtag classy. Yeah, this is bullshit. A comp is a comp. 
no fees on comps. This is totally classless. I get when there's taxes on comps. I get that. That's a show cost, municipalities and all, but you're going to get the F&B. You're going to get the merch. Can we all get on the same page that when somebody has a guest, they're all of our guests? What happens in the 48 minutes between the box office closing and the time when the venue gives you finals? You know, we can all log into Ticketmaster 1 and see the math is already done. I don't know what the holdup is. We close the box office and you hand over the map. The sooner we finish, the sooner we can all go to bed. I think we can all get on board on this shit. That does it for Promoter 101 Tweets of the Week. Make sure to follow Dan on Twitter. He's at the Jew. And if you have your own Promoter 101 thoughts, feel free to tweet them at us or email them over. Anything that makes us smile will get used on the air. John Huey, co-head of the office for CAA Nashville, Tennessee, Promoter 101. It's time for a new segment, An Artist Point of View. This week we have Straight No Chasers, Mike Luganbill, talking about the artist perspective. Thank you for being here. Steiny, thanks for having me here, man, in my hometown, my new hometown. You live it. You're on the road. You do the bus thing. You just got done with a full amphitheater, too. You just played Red Rocks, for God's sakes. For about a month this summer, yeah. So you guys are 10 guys that started singing to pick up girls on campus at the University of Indiana, right? That's right. That's right. Now headlining Red Rocks Amphitheater. You guys literally took it from singing on campus to being rock star levels at an amphitheater and selling it. Well, thank you. Yeah. I wish that it worked that quickly. I feel like a lot of people don't realize we grinded it out for a really long time. There was probably two or three years there. We weren't really making any kind of money. Like it was tough and we just had to believe. And it's been a crazy ride. And like you said, last week, you know, we played Red Rocks and who would ever thought that an acapella group would play Red Rocks Amphitheater? I think the fact that you guys are doing something that really hasn't happened much there is part of the genius of what you guys do. You can bring it to new settings and then you pulled it off. You guys are breaking down barriers and bringing arts to the people in a new way and people wanted to see it. Thousands of people showed up. They have to give a little bit of a shout out to Postmodern Jukebox who we did an entire tour with and the show at Red Rocks was our last show of that whole tour. So that was a good tour with them. That was a lot of fun. So you guys are going back out, though, and you're doing the normal fall Christmas run. You'll be back in the theaters. The speakeasy tour. Yeah. Where your fans are used to seeing you inside where it's protected and comfortable. Nobody's going to get a sunburn at a straight no chaser show this fall. Yeah. And it's only us. There's no opener. There's no other act. We won't be going on at 915 every night. We'll be going on at 730 or 8 o'clock, depending on the room. It's going to be great. We kick off the speakeasy tour end of October and we'll go through January the 2nd. And there's a lot of new music coming too. So it should be a good time. We were in Paris and I was talking about let's play the smaller room because it's nicer and let's do two shows in a day. That's probably the better thing to do in this scenario. And you were like, you really don't get it from my point of view. And I was like, yeah, I guess I don't. Why, why don't you like the idea? And you're like, I can only do two shows a day, once, maybe twice a tour, because my voice is the show. There's not instruments that are protecting that. We can't hide a bad night of vocals. We have to be able to sing every night. And if I do two shows too many times, I don't deliver the fans the show that we promised them. And our quality is important to me. And I totally didn't appreciate what I had said to you because it was based on my rock band thinking of let's put two shows in a day because it's the better place for you to see the show. And you're like, yeah, that makes sense, except we're already doing a couple doubles that week and I really am worried about the quality. Let's play the other room because the show will be better musically. And that's what I care about more. Wow, I'm really surprised that you can remember that. I totally took that to heart. 
it's a weird thing. It's like you can probably do the shows, but then the quality of it might have a little bit of suffering in there. You try to make it really rare and far between, right? Well, yeah, yeah. yeah like so you can protect your voice. Yeah, yeah. And it's one of those things where you can do it, but should you do it? You've got a standard. You, you don't want to fall below. And that's... Exactly. Does it make sense to do it? Because it's not about the money. It's about the show. It's about the quality of the show, stuff like that. The artist's point of view is so important to get to truly understand that view. Thank you so much for taking time, Mike. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you, Dan. Promoter 101 in the beautiful city of Nashville. Promoter 101, Nashville. Mike's an incredible client. He's a great friend. I want to thank him again for joining us on Promoter 101. Hi, this is Nick Gold from Entertainment Travel. I'm on Promoter 101. Our second interview of episode 58 of Promoter 101 will be with First Row Talent's John Finberg. He's on a roll right now with Nightwish and talk about living and working outside of the U.S. John Finberg, it's been a long time, buddy. Thanks for joining us. Dan, I don't think I've seen you in 10 years or more. It's been a while, man. It's been a while, but our careers started together back in the day. Yeah, late 90s, mid-90s here, right? You've always had a good knack for finding acts that could sell. I get them early, unfortunately haven't kept them all, but I've been able to find stuff that I like that I think others would like, and more than about 10 times in the last 20 years, I was right. You've been with a couple different agencies, and you've been on your own, you're back on your own. I remember at one point you shared a desk with Gabe Bloom. I started in 1994 in Philadelphia, up in an attic with somebody back in Philadelphia, and we shared an attic in his house, and I started doing it then, and then I went to Michigan and worked with Mark Hyman, and I kind of learned how not to do things. And then from there, I went to go work for Scott Weiss, who was in San Francisco, and he had an L.A. office with Gabe. And that's how I came out to the West Coast the first time. Unfortunately, Gabe is no longer with us, but he was one of the bigger personalities in the business. And what a great hang. I loved Gabe. I think I got part of my personality from him. He never held in what he thought, and I kind of appreciated that. Alternative acts and alternative music. Here's the thing. I always liked heavy metal stuff when I was growing up, so I kind of sort of steered towards a lot of European stuff. That extreme music, not so much, always was there, but only with really one or two people. But this crazy, over-the-top European stuff that comes over here and plays in clubs and then goes over to Europe and plays in 15,000 seaters, that was always my thing, and I always liked that. So you book the entire world, right? Some stuff I do, South America, Asia, Australia. Australia, occasionally something like in Russia, but mostly it's North America. Do you speak multiple languages? Maybe 20 words in Thai, but I don't really say it out loud here because it sounds weird with my accent and only because I live there. How did Thailand come into the picture for you? Okay. What do I have in the bank? Where can I go the rest of my life? So I went to my financial advisor at the time and I said, this is what I got. You obviously know. Where can I live for the next 50 years if I never worked another day in my life? And on that list were places like Brazil, Costa Rica, and Thailand came up. So I thought, well, Thailand seems far away, really far. Like I could go there and I don't have to be music business John. I could be John the mailman or John the movie ticket taker. So I went to Thailand on a vacation to see what it was like. I went there for three weeks. I flew home, booked a flight to go right back. I didn't even want to leave. So I wound up staying an extra 10 days. I just couldn't get it out of my system. And ever since then, I've just been going back. What is it about Thailand that makes it so incredible to you? In America, it's always been a certain way where it's who you are, what you do for a living. A lot of the 
times here, the first question is, what do you do for a living? And it's like, well, if you tell them, who do you book? Well, what do you, who is it? Who? This was never like, who are you? I went over there and I just told people I worked at a post office and no one knew anything. I said, I deliver mail. They didn't care. They just knew that I was there and I would go to the same places and I became friendly with people. I think what attracted me there the most is there's no status. They don't care what kind of car you drive, what kind of place you live in. I know a lot of people think that there's other reasons why I went, but that was never the case because anybody that knows me knows that that was never a problem. But a lot of people think that the reason why you go there is the same reason why 99% of other people go there. I'm baffled. Let's just say it's kind of a country that's known for its sex tourism. I mean, look, don't get me wrong. I'm happy that you aren't familiar with it. I myself didn't really know much like that until I got there and saw it. By going there and experiencing that visually, seeing how it is, I was able to understand the way that life is over there. And over the 15 years I've been going there, now look, I'm able to own businesses over there. I adapted my brain from America and brought it to a country like that and used my skills. Now I have five bars in the middle of Bangkok that I also own. It's pretty impressive, my friend. I got lucky. Listen. Everything I've ever done in my life, I've always tried to use my job skills to anything I did. So when I got there and I started getting comfortable enough to own a business, I went and negotiated great deals for great properties that I saw potential later on, similar to when you book a show for low money because you think in 10 years the band's going to be huge. So I got property in great locations a couple year, few years ago that are now just exploding. I got in early, so I got a great deal. You're now an agent and a manager, right? Well, I am a partner in a management company that my two partners are based in Finland. Tenth year was this year. And the band has flourished. You guys are doing real business. Well, in America, yeah, but it took a long time. The band came here in 2004 on their first tour, and I saw it. I knew right away. You know, I got lucky the way I came across the band, how I got the band, and all of that was accidental, and I knew it, so I always wanted to kind of sort of make sure that everything I did was done right, and it looks like it worked. I mean, the business is at its best. On the third singer, it got even bigger. Kind of like Spinal Tap with their drummers. You know, it's interesting. You know, the band has improved no matter what happens. You book other bands besides Nightwish. How many other bands are on the roster? There's about 25, 26. So that's a lot of acts. And some of them you book for the world? At one point, at my worst, most addicted to this whole thing world, I was booking over 100 myself, which is part of the reason why I got to the point where I was health-wise that forced me to move to a different country and look at other businesses. My roster now is streamlined to where I'm happy with what I have. The clients that are doing well are loyal and successful. It's a great place to be in. It really actually is. I'm probably at my happiest I've been in 20 years. You know, I think calming down and all that helped. You've got a long history of booking X, 26, 27 years now, right? Yeah. Almost 24 years of doing this. For agents that are just starting out, learning the business, do you have any advice? No, because I don't know how to advise somebody to do it. Because if I did, I would have to tell them, do what I do, which is stay on your own, work, and earn. When calling bigger promoters, the Live Nation buyers of the world, the AG buyers of the world, can that be intimidating? No. You know, it's funny. 24 years almost later, I still struggle with some of the same things I struggle with from the mid-90s and with some of the same people. I don't have to say names. There's always a couple that are whatever, but I wouldn't say it's intimidating. It's just as 
one particular client, Nightwish, continues to get bigger and has to play larger rooms. And now I'm getting on the phone with people's bosses that where I was just talking to the younger buyers. It's not intimidating because it seems that if it's about the right band, they welcome the call. I like that you have a different view of the world and the industry and it makes for different creative packages. It seems like it's a healthy thing for the industry. I mean, look, in 2001, I did this thing, these VIP tickets in a New York City club level. Nobody ever really did that. And I forced it on one of my shows in New York. And then a couple of shows I did that just in New York. And then I started doing it more for tours. And then I noticed a lot more people did it. Now this VIP thing is like this big, huge thing. But I mean, in clubs, it was never like that. You never got a meet and greet with a band at a club. It was always like, yeah, you go meet Bon Jovi and pay $750, but it was never like, I'm going to go to BB King's in New York and go meet some face painted metal guy that, you know, I've been listening to for 15 years. I could pay it upcharge and I could go meet him and get a poster. That was never going on. So I kind of feel like that was somewhat started in a weird way, maybe by me. When you were selling me club shows when I was 20 years old, you were never worried about me paying your ex. You were never worried about the production or the marketing. You you knew it was a job I could do. I don't worry that much. I sell 90% of my stuff to the same people. I get comfortable with the guy and I feel like that guy can be trusted with the smallest and the biggest. I think with any business that we're in, you have to be comfortable with your partners. And I feel like the agent promoter is a partnership, not just a business deal. John, thank you so much for taking the time and talking to us on Promoter 101. Thanks, Dan. And I hope I can come back again and again and again. John is one of a kind. I'm thrilled he's found success doing what he loves to do. Congrats, John. Hi, this is Heath Miller. Becca Leifer. Ed Mike Cohn. Derek Dimenstein. Jason Kupperman. Jason Miller. John Schur. Marsha Vlasic. Mike Rubin. Ricardo Baco. Peter Schwartz. Nick Storch. I'm on Promoter 101. Promoter 101. I'm on Promoter 101. Celebrating some birthdays this week, Dan. This is the week of November 13th to the 19th, 2017. Monday, November 13th. AC's Ted Honig, Frank Mull, and Live Nation's Steve Herman. On Tuesday... Wishing happy birthday to Benjamin Harper. Wednesday, ticket flies Jeff White. We love you, Jeffy. And the Danforths, Stephen Riff. On Thursday, the 16th, we're wishing a happy birthday to Hillary Zuckerberg, the Birchmere's Michael Jaworik, and our buddy, Andrew Lenoy. Friday, Sean Healy of Sean Healy Presents and East Coast promoter Tyler Grill. On Saturday, wishing a happy birthday to the man, Tom Ross. Plus, Bowie Presents Josh Boddy and John Nichols. On Sunday, Seattle Theater Group's Adam Zacks, Matthew Smith, a.k.a. Smitty, Bill Word, and drummer Matt Sorum. Happy birthday to you all from the gang and Promoter 101. Hi, I'm Holly Gleason, editor of Woman Walk the Line, here at Promoter 101, where they know how to get it done. If you want to reach out to us, send us an email at steiny at promoter101.net. <laughs> this one brought to you by the letter C. Promoter 101. <laughs> On our next show, we have Billions' Adam Voice talking about the success of Mumford & Sons and Vampire Weekend, plus Works Entertainment's own David Britz. Hey, but until then, wishing you sold-out shows for the weeks to come. Cheers. Hey, this is David Britz from Works Entertainment, and you are listening to Promoter 101. <laughs>